Magic Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Magic, Ritual, and Witchcraft, Volume 4, Number 1, Summer 2009. Published by the University of Pennsylvania Press. Better Than Magic, Cornelius Agrippa and Lazarellian Hermetism. By Voter J. Hanegraaff, University of Amsterdam, with commentary and notes by me, Frater R.C. At least since Francis Yates's famous study of Bruno, published in 1964, it has been natural for scholars to draw direct connections between the development of a learned magic in the Renaissance and Ficino's 1463 translation of the Corpus Hermeticum, known as the Pymander. At first sight, such connections seemed plausible enough, but at closer scrutiny, the relation between hermetism and magic has turned out to be extremely complex. One reason has to do with the conceptual ambiguities of magic as such, another with the strong evidence for continuities rather than sharp breaks between medieval and Renaissance magic. Note for an excellent example of this, see Frank Klass in Medieval Ritual Magic in the Renaissance, Aries 3, 2003. And yet another important factor is the long underestimated role of Zoroaster, the supposed inventor of Magia, who challenged Hermes' priority in the context of the Prisca Theologia discourse. Note that this point is abundantly documented in Michael Stausberg, Fascination Zarathustra. Zoroaster und die europäische Religionsgeschichte die frühen Neuzeit, Berlin, New York, Walter de Greuter, 1998. In relation to Yeats's concept of a Renaissance hermetic tradition traceable to Ficino, it is relevant to note that only a few years after his translation of the Corpus Hermeticum and henceforth to the end of his life, Ficino gave Zoroaster priority over Hermes in his genealogy of Prisca See the overview of these Renaissance theology genealogies in Wouter J. Hanegraaff tradition. Hence, one might as well speak of a Zoroastrian tradition in the Renaissance. This is a big debate um, whether or not the Hermetic tradition should be reconceptualized as Oriental Platonism. 
All these elements are important, but as an introduction to my present discussion of hermetism and magic in the oeuvre of Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa, special attention must be given to yet another complicating factor. Although Ficino's translation of the Corpus Hermeticum was supposedly at the origin of a revival of Renaissance magic, in fact, that collection of treatises from the 2nd and 3rd century contains virtually nothing that, by any definition, could be construed as magic. The optical illusion according to which Ficino's Pymander laid the foundations for a magical discourse was largely created by Yeats's considerable rhetorical skills. If one studies her Giordano Bruno and the Hermetic tradition carefully, discovers that in her efforts to explain the revival of magic in terms of the revival of Hermetism, she was systematically quoting not from Ficino's Pymander but from the Aesclepius. More particularly, within that relatively lengthy treatise, she systematically highlighted not only a few admittedly notorious idolatrous passages that had been known in Latin throughout the Middle Ages, and therefore could hardly be called great news for intellectuals in the second half of the 15th century. A note on the Aesclepius 23-24 and 37-38, to where Hermes praises the Egyptian practice of drawing down the gods into temple statues. These passages were the foundation for Augustine's condemnation of Hermes in Book 5 of De Civitate Dei, and for similar condemnations by medieval theologians, notably since William of Auvergne, and the effects of which still reverberate strongly to Inficino's work, particularly his De Vita Celitas Comparanda. So what we're seeing here is, is a very distinct condemnation of magical practice going back to St. Augustine as it relates to the Corpus Hermeticum. Also, another note just to remember is that when, when the term hermetism is used, it's a re reference to the original source documents of the Corpus Hermeticum and other such writings by the pseudonymous Hermes Trismegistus. And when we say hermeticism, that's referring to the later on spiritual movement that came out of those documents. Just a quick note. In short, the magical dimension of Hermetism was not n new in the Renaissance, and what was new, the Corpus Hermeticum, was not magical. Nevertheless, I will argue below that, in spite of its non-magical contents, the Corpus Hermeticum did indeed become important to a magical revival during the Renaissance, particularly due to its indirect influence on Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa and his famous Summa of Renaissance Magic, De Occulta Philosophia Libri Tres, 1533. That is the three books of occult philosophy. But we will see that the reasons for this are quite different from what one would assume from reading Francis Yates. We are not dealing here with the straightforward case of a magical text influencing a later magical approach but rather with an innovative interpretation of a non-magical text, resulting in a new perspective on how the attainment of the superior gnosis implies the acquisition of superhuman powers. Moreover, new perspective was not seen as magical either, but as something much better than magic. Nevertheless, it was perhaps inevitable that these nuances, which will be at the center of attention here, were lost on later generations for whom Agrippa ranked as a magical authority par excellence. Before focusing on Agrippa and his engagement with the Hermetica, two more preliminary points must be made. The first one concerns a question that follows rather obviously from the above. If it is true that enthusiasts of the Pymander could not find any magic there, then what could they find? From what we know now about the Corpus Hermeticum, we might be tempted to answer 
a religious philosophy or philosophical religiosity focused on the quest for gnosis, superior knowledge of oneself and of God. Such is, after all, the basic message of the Corpus Hermeticum. Strange, though it might seem at first sight, however, this answer would be wrong. Close analysis of Ficino's translation choices in the Pymander demonstrates how, at least in 1463, he completely missed both the special religious connotations and the central importance of the Greek word gnosis and its cognates, even to the point of forgetting to translate part of a key passage in Corpus Hermeticum 13, which is perfectly preserved in the Greek manuscript he was using. Ficino may therefore have seen Hermes as one of the chief proponents of ancient wisdom, as a pagan prophet of Christian truth, and as a supreme authority regarding the so-called occult sciences. But he overlooked the specific message that the authors of the Corpus Hermeticum had been trying to impress upon their readers, and his contemporaries could not infer it from the Pymander on the basis of his translation. However, Although he missed the message of Gnosis central to the Hermetica, I would argue that Ficino did find a very close equivalent elsewhere, namely, in Plato's Phaedrus. The Phaedrin concept of four types of mania, furor in Latin, were understood by him correctly, in my opinion, as ecstatic means of access to superior divine knowledge, and he described them in terms that are sometimes so close to the Hermetic Gnosis as to be almost indistinguishable. In short, if Ficino believed in something to which we might refer as Gnosis, his main reference was not Hermes, but Plato. My second point is that Ficino cannot be held blameless for having overlooked the centrality of Gnosis in the Hermetica because, as it turns out, his contemporary Lodovico Lazzarelli, 1447-1500, was reading the same Greek texts from an independent manuscript and did get the point. Lazzarelli's importance resides in the fact that he not only translated the three final tractates from the Corpus, 16 to 18, which were not included in the Pymander, but also in his dialogue known as the Crater Hermetis, produced what is arguably the most profound Renaissance interpretation of the philosophical Hermetica. Contrary to what has been claimed by D.P. Walker, Moshe Adele, and others, Lazzarelli's interpretations of the Hermetica includes an unambiguous rejection of astral magic. Instead, the Crater Hermetis concentrates entirely and very explicitly on the quest for Gnosis, knowledge of one's self and of God, as the only way to the attainment of true felicity. In other words, although he presented a thoroughly Christianized reading, Lazzarelli had still understood the essential message of the Hermetica much better than Ficino. Agrippa's Italian Period All specialists agree that the Hermetic writings had a very strong impact on Agrippa's thinking during his early informative Italian period. From a classic Yeatsian perspective, this fact fits the picture easily. Agrippa must have been introduced to the magical message of the Hermetica during these early years, and this interest in magic simply developed further until it finally came to full flower in the synthesis of De Occulta Philosophia but we will see that the actual development of Agrippa's thinking was very different and considerably more complex. Of particular importance is the fact that Lazzarelli's Crater Hermetis played a much more central role in it than has been recognized by scholars so far. Note, 
As I argued in Lodovico Lazzarelli and the Hermetic Christ, the scholarly neglect of Lazzarelli after 1964 can be attributed essentially to the fact that Yeats's preferences and emphases were followed uncritically by almost all later scholars. Yeats herself was familiar with the groundbreaking 1938 article by Christeller that first called attention of scholars to the importance of the Hermetica in Renaissance culture and that had highlighted Ficino and Lazzarelli as the two central authors in that regard. Nevertheless, in her Giordano Bruno, she marginalized Lazzarelli's importance, mentioning him merely in passing as a most ardent hermetist and a most enthusiastic, exaggerated hermetist, and devoting no more than one long footnote to him in his spiritual master Giovanni de Correggio. Unfortunately, the importance of Christeller and of the testi Humanistici volume to Yeats's concept of the Hermetic tradition is likewise overlooked in the recent biography of Yeats by Marjorie Jones, Francis Yeats and the Hermetic Tradition, 2008. It will be argued here that Lazzarelli's central concept of spiritual regeneration leading to a superior gnosis is the key not only to understanding Agrippa's mature ideas about true knowledge of God, but moreover, that the latter is the key to understanding his mature religious perspective as presented in De Occultis Philosophia Libri Tres, including even his understanding of magic. Agrippa's hermetic period runs from 1509 to 1518, the last seven years of which he spent in Italy. It begins with his lectures on Reuchlin at the University of Deux in 1509, which unfortunately have not been preserved. The first documented evidence we have of his hermetic interests is the first draft of De Occulta Philosophia from 1510. Five years later, Agrippa lectured on Ficino's Pimander in Pavia. Again, these lectures themselves are lost, but we still have the introduction, known as the Oratio Habita Papie in Prelezione Hermetis Trismegisti de Potestate et Sapientia Dei. It was followed one year later, in 1516, by a Dialogus de Homine, of which we have only the first part, and finally by a complete text known as De Triplici Ratione Cognoscendi Deum. That all these texts rely heavily on hermetic materials has been known for a long time, and the numerous references to Lazzarelli have been duly noted as well. But what has not been sufficiently recognized is the true extent to which Agrippa was reading the philosophical Hermetica through Lazzarelli's eyes. Before launching into my analysis, it bears repeating that Ficino's translation in the Pamander had the effect of marginalizing and obscuring the emphasis on Gnosis central to the philosophical Hermetica, whereas Lazzarelli systematically highlighted that dimension from a heavily Christian context in his De Soma Homine Digitate Dialogus Qui Inscribitur Via Christi et Crater Hermetis. The first version of De Occulta Philosophia, 1510. As pointed out by Peron Campagni, there is no doubt that Agrippa's reading of Johannes Reuchlin's De Verbo Merifico first, quote, pointed him towards his enterprise of rehabilitating magic by means of religion. Having lectured on Reuchlin at the University of Dole, in 1509, shortly thereafter, he spent some time in Würzburg, visiting Johannes Tritemius. The two agreed that magic had been considered the height of sublimity by the ancient philosophers, sages, and priests. 
had sadly fallen into disrepute because it had come to be confused with the pernicious errors, falsifications, and superstitions of depraved philosophers, and now needed to be restored to its original purity. It's really important, I believe, to understand historically from all these pioneers of, of what we now consider the Western esoteric tradition, that they did not see themselves as departing the mainstream of, of Western Christian or philosophical thinking and pursuing magic, but as engaging in a project to resuscitate some of the spiritual core of what their traditions had lost. This is a really important thing to understand. These were not people entering into the liminal, but trying to bring things that were forgotten back into the mainstream of Christian spirituality and popular culture. Encouraged by this discussion, Agrippa produced the first draft of De Occulta Philosophia and sent it to Trithemius with a dedicatory letter. Already in his first version in 1510, we find a subdivision of magic into three levels, probably modeled after, or at least influenced by, Reuchlin's categorization of the Ars Miraculorum. Note, each one of the Ars Miraculorum is divided into three parts, each one of which represents a special discipline of its own, namely into physics, astrology, and magic, the latter containing both Goethe and Theurgia. That's very important to see how they, physics, astrology, all, all thrown together. They did not distinguish in a validity between these two at this point. The first and lowest level is physical and concerned with the sublunar world. The second is celestial and mathematical, mostly concerned with numbers and astrology. And the highest, religious or ceremonial one, is concerned with demonic and angelic entities above the fixed stars. Reuchlin reserved the term magia for this third level and subdivided it into superstitious Goetheia and religious theurgia. In proposing a similar scheme, Agrippa, however, used magia as the umbrella term for all three levels. Nevertheless, he agreed with Reuchlin that while the three are intimately connected, the true and pure magic that his work was all about was the divine theurgy belonging to the third level. This magic was all about purification and interior elevation, so one might perhaps wonder what was magical about it. We will see that the influence of Lazzarelli's crater provides us with an answer to that question. Peron Campagni's critical edition of De Occulta Philosophia allows us to compare the final version in three books published in 1533 with the original version of 1510. In the latter, Lazzarelli is mentioned only twice, but in significant spots. Book 3 begins with several introductory chapters and then moves on to detailed discussions of the various entities belonging to the great chain of being, culminating in two chapters devoted to the true nature of man, who, as famously emphasized by Pico, has a measure of freedom unique among all entities in the metaphysical hierarchy of creation. The first of these two, chapter 22, is very short. It states that man is created after God's image, that the world is the image of God, and that man is the image of the world and therefore called microcosm. The world and man are both rational creatures, but while the world is immortal, man is mortal. As Hermes teaches, however, this means that only man's parts dissolve after death, not that he perishes and turns to nothing. The soul therefore survives, and in the next chapter, 23, Agrippa paraphrases Lazzarelli without acknowledgement 
to the effect that the soul is a divine light, created after the image of the Logos, who is the cause of causes and first exemplar of all. Exactly the same passage is paraphrased again, almost identically at the end of chapter 36, devoted to the highest of the four Platonic furores, Eros. Agrippa writes here that by means of Eros, the mind is converted and transmuted into God, and is thus restored to its true nature of an image and likeness of the divine. Very interesting that this is through of the four Platonic furores, Eros, the erotic. Well, I'm not going to say get into that too much. It's, it's a technical thing that you can easily misread and over-exaggerate the importance of, but it is important. It is significant there, especially as earlier was mentioned, uh, the relationship and, and comparison between um, how man is created in God's image, that the world is the image of the God, which really makes me think a lot about Sally McFaig's ecological theology that does draw heavily from historical theology, and even back to Augustine, and looks at a naturalist interpretation of God as coterminous with nature. But again, I'm, I'm, I'm putting a bit more in there than there actually is, but it is very interesting to see these ideas, naturalistic ideas, tend, uh, coming back in and out of those texts and mainstream thinkers of the time. In support of this statement, he quotes the famous Magnum Miraculum passage from the Asclepius about how man passes into the nature of God as if he were God himself, despising his merely human part and putting his hope in the divine part. The immediately following passage strongly emphasizes the superior knowledge granted to this divinized man, thereby confirming my earlier suggestion that in the wake of Ficino, the Platonic Führers were understood as an equivalent of what we might call gnosis. That's a key point. The final version of De Occulta Philosophia 1533. If we compare the 1510 version of De Occulta Philosophia with the final version in the three books published in 1533, we make some interesting discoveries. Chapter 22 on the nature of man has become chapter 36 and is greatly expanded. Most of the added material can be traced to Giorgio de Veneto's De Harmonia Mundi, the harmony of the world, including various hermetic passages quoted or referred to indirectly from there, but there are also several additional references to Lazzarelli, particularly at the end of the chapter. What happens there is of central importance and can only be understood by knowing a bit more about Lazzarelli and his message. As I have shown in detail elsewhere, the Crater Hermetis culminates in a unique and very daring thesis. The regenerated man who has attained true gnosis thereby also attains superhuman powers. Because he has come to share in the very essence of divinity, he necessarily participates in God's powers of creation, the example par excellence of which is God's power to create souls. Lazzarelli's argument is based on a highly original exegesis of the notorious idolatrous passages from the Ashlepius 23-24 and 37-38, which had been condemned by Augustine in Book 8 of De Civitate Dei. Note on the details of this condemnation see Wouter J. Honograph Hermetism, forthcoming in A Guide to the Historical Reception of Augustine, Oxford University Press, 2011. 
Precisely in this most unlikely of all places, Lazarelli believed that the deepest secret was to be found. Lazarelli admits that even Hermes Trismegistus himself had lapsed into idolatry, because as a pagan living before the Incarnation, he could only misconstrue the message that Pymandras revealed to him. The Egyptians attracted souls into their statues because they had not yet attained perfect knowledge of God and therefore did not know how to create souls themselves. And the fact that Hermes defends this idolatrous practice indicates that in this regard he was still not perfectly enlightened himself. Only the Christian Hermetist is able to go beyond Hermes' wisdom and attain that perfect knowledge of God by means of which he may participate in God's fertility that is to say, in his very powers of creation. As a result, he can do what even Hermes could not. Like God himself, he can create souls. This turns out to be the great mystery of divine knowledge that Lazarelli is revealing to his pupils in the Crater Hermetis. Behind it, however, there was yet another secret, which was not revealed even in the Crater. Lazzarelli believed that this perfect knowledge and supreme power of divine creation had in fact been attained by his spiritual master Giovanni Mercurio da Caraggio, the Hermetic Christ, who had spectacularly entered Rome on Palm Sunday, 1484, sitting on a donkey, wearing a crown of thorns and bearing a message that identified him as Poimandras himself. In a nutshell, Lazzarelli believed that Christ himself, the second person of the Trinity, had first spoken to Hermes under the guise of Poimandras, had then incarnated as Jesus Christ, and had now finally returned as Giovanni de Caraggio, whose teachings were the first to perfectly combine the ancient Hermetic wisdom with the Christian revelation. There's so much to say on that, I'm just going to move on. But it's important to keep in mind that these were the high-level conversations going on in the 16th century, and it is very much due to them, these ideas that through knowing Christ, we can create souls maybe by having this special knowledge. Um, this is what filtered down into things like uh, the cunning folk and, and witchcraft throughout the next several hundred years uh, up to present day. You can see these ideas evident in New Ageism across the board in occult literature and, and ritual practice among most of the traditions, everything up, even including the Hebrew golems and stuff like that. All this, I will argue, is essential as a background to Agrippa's enigmatic statements about a supreme arcanum of divine generation in the final version of De Occulta Philosophia. Agrippa did not have access to the original complete version of Lazzarelli's Crater. Instead, he was reading the 1505 edition by Jacques Lefebvre de Table, Jacobus Faber Stapulensis, where it is printed together with Ficino's Pymander and the Asclepius. Lefebvre was acutely aware of the idolatrous nature of the Asclepius passages and went as far as printing Lapsus Hermetis in the margin next to them. However, he seems to have approved of Lazzarelli's perspective, although his edition of the Crater differs from the original in many details. Most importantly, one of the two pupils, Pontano, is edited out of the text entirely. Lefebvre's modifications leave Lazzarelli's interpretation intact. De Occulta Philosophia Libri Tres 3.36 finishes with a lengthy discourse on the power of the word sermo or verbo, culminating 
in a crucial passage explicitly based upon Lazarelli. Here, Agrippa refers to a supreme arcanum revealed exclusively by Christ. Quote, Only the King, Messiah, the Word of the Father made flesh, Jesus Christ, has revealed this arcanum and will make it manifest more openly in a certain fullness of time. As Lazarelli sang in the Crater Hermetis, and first there should be a note about this, that to correctly understand the passage it is important to realize that the sentence mentum propteria persimelem sibi is not supposed to be a formulation by Agrippa himself, as one would naturally infer from Peron Campagni's edition, page 513, but already belongs to the hymn quoted from Lazarelli, which goes thus. Therefore the begetter gave man a mind quite like his own, and speech, that having also been given consciousness, he would bring forth gods that are truly like gods. More than happy is he, who knows the gifts of his fate. He freely fulfills them, for he must be reckoned among the gods, and is not inferior to the gods above. They overcome the trials of fate, and chase away destructive illness, they give prophetic dreams, they offer help in man's need, they punish the godless, and splendidly reward the pious. Thus they fulfill the command of God the Father. These are the disciples, these are the sons of God. Who are not born from the will of the flesh, nor from the will of a man, or of a menstruating woman, but from God. But it is a literal generation in which the Son is like the Father in all manner of similitude, and in which the begotten is the same in species as the begetter. And this is the power, given form by the mind, of the word rightly received in a well-disposed subject, like semen in the womb for generation and giving birth. I say well-disposed and rightly received, because not all things get to partake in the word in the same manner, but some things thus, others differently. And these things belong to the most recondite secrets of nature, which should not be publicly discussed any further. <laughs> if one reads this passage against the background of Lazarelli's Crater, its meaning is perfectly clear. The human soul is created after the image of the Logos, and therefore when a man attains true knowledge, is reborn from the Father himself, and thereby returns to his original unity with that divine image, he also comes to participate in God's very powers of creation or generation. Lazzarelli had written that only one man knew this deepest secret of divine knowledge and probably meant his teacher Giovanni Mercurio de Caraggio, but Agrippa must have assumed that he meant Jesus Christ. The hymn in the passage quoted above is taken from Lazzarelli's Hymn of Generation, but in a cut-and-paste version taken from Lefebvre's edition. Given Agrippa's familiarity with the Aesclepius as well as with Augustine, and the fact that he had read Lazzarelli's hymn in its original version as transmitted by Lefebvre, we must assume that he knew how strongly it was grounded in the idolatrous passages of the Aesclepius, and that the gods brought forth by the regenerated man had originated as pagan deities attracted into the Egyptian statues. But clearly he also understood and appreciated Lazzarelli's non-magical interpretation according to which these passages can be decoded as referring to not idolatry but to the superhuman powers of creation and generation that are attained by the man who achieves true knowledge. The original background of his cut-and-paste version would no longer be apparent to the reader of De Occulta Philosophia, 
and indeed its significance has escaped modern scholars of Agrippa as well. For us, the important thing is to see that Agrippa's supreme arcanum, as revealed in this passage, concerns the effects of spiritual rebirth, which results from the attainment of true gnosis. The men of true knowledge, who can even bring forth gods, are not born from the will of the flesh or from a menstruating woman, as he writes, but from God himself. Lazarelli had strongly emphasized, and Agrippa repeats, that this supreme mystery of divine generation should not be understood metaphorically, but literally. And perhaps this makes it somewhat easier to understand that Agrippa finishes by referring to it as the most recondite secrets of nature, which should not be publicly discussed any further. We do not know at what time these passages were added to the original 1510 draft of De Occulta Philosophia, but if we put them next to the other hermetic texts under discussion here, it seems most plausible to me that they are a product of the same Italian period. Finally, it might be noted that all of this lends strong support to Perone Campagni's emphasis against Christopher Larrick, who's a good friend of mine from 2004 and wrote a book on Agrippa looking at a Derrida available through Brill, that magical power is a result of man's assimilation into God and not the instrument for attaining it. To this, I would now add that this was exactly Lazarelli's original position as well, and it should be specified that the power of the regenerated man is actually the divine power of creation, not magical power as commonly understood. So the pivotal point here is the debate. Doesn't matter really who which you know who these scholars are, but there's the debate of whether magic is used, theurgia is used to assimilate, become divinized and one with God and become more like God, or do we gain these powers, divine powers, theurgical powers, thaumaturgical powers for wonder working as a result of our pietist attainment of one with oneness with God and it, you know through the many techniques of prayer, worship, and imitatio Christi, the imitation of Christ, of course. But we can also see from this the debate that would have been around amongst even the pagan practitioners of magic, whether magic is something to connect us with the gods or is the result of being connected with the gods. The methodological point is quite crucial, in my opinion, because uh, the path to how we become closer to God or in, you know, if you want to use higher self-language, you can do that. Slightly heretical, but that's fine. Um, it's definitely anachronistic to these folks. But is it the method of us connecting with God that gives us the ability to affect the world? Or do we need special techniques and magical tools to become one with God? And is the purpose just to become one with God? This would argue, no, the magical power is a result of man's assimilation into God, not the instrument of it. And this also brings up the key point that magical power is the divine power of creation and not a power of magic separate from divine creation. So it's in connecting with our divine self that we gain these powers. And that's a point you see in, in the Kabbalistic idea of Nehushtan and the middle pillar. The Pavian Oratio we have seen that the Oratio Habita Papie was written as an introduction to Agrippa's lectures in Pavia, or Pavia, 
about Ficino's Pimander. Of course, it is frustrating that we do not have those lectures ourselves, but Agrippa's short summary of the Corpus Hermeticum's message clearly shows how strongly his reading of it was influenced by Lazzarelli. The Pimander, he writes, instructs us about the knowledge of ourselves, the ascent of the intellect, arcane prayers, the unity with God, and the sacrament of regeneration. I really like the arcane prayers. We should use that more often. <laughs> This reads like a short summary of the Crater Hermetis, which is, in fact, quoted throughout the Oratio. We are therefore entitled to assume that the lectures themselves must have developed the Lazarellian theme of divine regeneration in much greater detail. Two further aspects of the text merit our attention. The first concerns the historical genealogy of wisdom. Lazarelli had defended a daring minority position in that regard, True wisdom had begun not with Moses but long before him in Egypt and had reached the Hebrews from there. But Agrippa could not know this from the edition he was reading. Lefebvre de Taple undoubtedly worried about the idea of the Mosaic revelation being later than, and hence possibly dependent on, Egyptian paganism, had made a point of maintaining the priority of Moses. In his only editorial intervention of any importance, apart, of course, from the systematic removal of the third participant, Giovanni Pontano, he had edited the text in such a way that Lazzarelli's thesis became no more than a suggestion made by others. Agrippa might well have learned about Lazzarelli's actual opinion from Symphorian Champier, but the sources do not allow us to propose this possibility as more than a conjecture and Hanegraaff notes, nevertheless, he seemed to have overlooked 3.1, where the Egyptians are already given priority. It is a fact, however, that in his Oratio Habita Papier, he proposed a quite original compromise. Like Lazzarelli, he places Hermes earlier than Moses, but unlike him, he makes Hermes into a grandson of Abraham. This is the uh, age-old human, humano-theological idea of, if something threatens you, marry it. In this manner, Agrippa could have his cake and eat it too. <laughs> Maintaining both Hermes' station as a very ancient sage prior to Moses and his connection to the lineage of the biblical patriarchs. <clears throat> the second detail has considerable implications. Agrippa appears to have adopted Lazzarelli's extraordinary and unique belief that the Poimander's mind of divine power, mens divine potentiae in the Latin of Ficino's Poimander, who had manifested himself to the visionary in Corpus Hermeticum I, had been none other than Christ himself, the second person of the Trinity. Quote, Thrice great Pimander Mercurius, mind of divine power, that is to say our Lord the crucified Nazarene Jesus Christ, who is the true Pimander, who as the messenger of great counsel, illuminates our mind with the true light, whom we profess to be truly God and truly man, the father of regeneration, and whom we expect as the judge of the coming age. That's from Agrippa Oratio Habita Papier, 125. This passage is too explicit to leave any room for doubt that Agrippa meant exactly what he wrote. The Logos had revealed himself to an Egyptian visionary, as the divine light with whom Hermes himself was one, long before incarnated as Jesus Christ. On the centrality of light and the ultimate unity of Hermes Pimandris, uh, see Hanegraaff's discussion of 
the two visionary episodes at the beginning of Corpus Hermeticum one in Hanegraaff Altered States of Knowledge. Lazzarelli himself, as already noted above, had gone even one step further. He believed that Poimandras, alias Christ, had reappeared in his own time in the person of his teacher Giovanni Mercurio da Correggio. We do not know whether Agrippa was aware of this belief, which cannot be inferred from the crater, although the stories about Correggio could easily have been known to him from sources and acquaintances such as notably Johannes Tritemius and Symphorium Champier. But even so, it is certain that we are dealing here with a unique doctrine that serves to harmonize Hermitism and Christianity to an extent, and in a manner for which I can think of no parallels elsewhere. It is remarkable, to say the least, that Agrippa dared to proclaim an idea as radical as this in a public university lecture. A note on Champier as the possible source of information about Correggio. Hanegraaff says, Trithemius has left us an account of Correggio's meeting with King Louis XII in Lyon, 1501. The Oratio on Man The dialogue de homine was long considered lost, but an incomplete version was discovered by Paolo Zambelli, who published an edition in 1965. As noted by Peron Campagni, in all likelihood it was largely a cut-and-paste job that recycled materials from Agrippa's lost lectures on Ficino's Pimander. If so, my thesis that Lazzarelli was his main guide to reading the Pimander is confirmed strongly, as will be seen. As already discussed above in De Occulta Philosophia 3.49, 36 in the 1510 version, Agrippa refers to the Platonic Fuhrer of Eros as the means by which man is restored to his unity with the divine and attains true knowledge. Likewise, De Homine begins with explicit references to the lower and the higher Eros. Agrippa tells his dialogue partner, Christophorus, that he should not waste so much time running after women and should better pursue the higher spiritual beauty that is perceived by the mind. Well, I could run with that one. Don't chase physical pleasure, just imagine it, and have a spiritual psychosexual relationship as we know the nuns were encouraged to do with their husband, Jesus Christ. That's why we have all these main documents from nuns is their diaries of erotic visualizations and masturbations with their husband, Jesus, late in the nights in the monasteries when the monks were not there. <laughs> And as far as the body is concerned, its true beauty does not reside in external features, but is perceived internally once we become aware of how the human microcosm is a beautiful image of the macrocosm. We should take note that these arguments were partly very borderline, if not heretical, because of the ongoing constant debate of whether or not there is a piece of the substance of God within us. Generally, there is considered not to be in Catholic or what was mainstream, entirely entirely mainstream theology back then, the idea that the substance of God is separate from the sub and not contained within the substance of humanity. And that's a crucial thing, and that differentiation is what really we see in the evolution of the understanding of magic and the ability of humans to create wonders or divinize themselves. Agrippa's general line of reasoning here is very close what we find in De Occulta Philosophia 3.36. 
likewise already discussed above. In both texts, the long discourse on man as a microcosm is shot through with references to the Corpus Hermeticum and to Lazzarelli's interpretation specifically. And Agrippa does much more than just quote Lazzarelli for sport. Basic lines of argumentation are taken straight from the Crater Hermetis. Already very close to the beginning, he introduces his basic theme by means of formulations closely inspired by those in the Crater. Quote, For, as Hermes says, God has given man a mind and the word, or the image of divinity, so that he uses them in the right way, and for the right end, is in no way different from the immortal gods. But he who pollutes them by vain pursuits incurs not immortality, but eternal death. At this point, neither Christophorus nor the general reader would be able to understand the deeper meaning of this passage, but in fact it refers, again, to the central doctrine of divine generation that will be revealed as the text continues. Further on in De Omni, Agrippa adopts Lazzarelli's differentiation between man as an image of God and as created after an image of God. Take note that the image word in the Hebrew Bible is tselem, also used to refer to the Hebrew notion of the body of light, as well as his conclusion that both are ultimately one and the same. Thus, when his discussion partner, Christophorus, concludes that man is only indirectly the image of God, because the macrocosm is the image of God, and man is the microcosmic reflection on the macrocosm, he is corrected by Agrippa. Man is not just formed after an image of God, but he really is the image of God, quote, in which are shining both the divine unity and the inseparable trinity. When Christophorus wants to shrug this off as no more than a theological commonplace, referring to will, intellect, and memory as the three potencies of the soul, interesting, Agrippa insists that he is not speaking about the soul as the image of God, but of man as the image of God. Here, he states, the Aristotelians have shown a better understanding than the Platonists, for they affirm along with the Catholic Church that man is an integrated being consisting of both body and soul, just as Christ is both man and God. Now, the theological term you might know and have heard about referring to Christ as man and God is homoousius, and the debate of whether Christ is man like God, homoousius. That's just a theological note on how it's interpreted historically and debated. Moreover, the three potencies of the soul are even more clearly present in angels. So if man specifically is called the image of God, this must refer to something specific to him that he has in common with no other creature. Like God, he embraces in his own being the full plenitude of all natures and substances that exist in all creatures and the entire universe. The only difference is that whereas God contains all things as their principle or source, man does so as the universal mediating link or nodal point of all things. Having sharply refuted the idea that if man is created as the image of God, God must therefore be anthropomorphic, Agrippa moves his interlocutor's attention to the centrality of knowledge as the root of all miracles. The more perfect our knowledge and understanding is, the greater, faster, and more efficient will be our ability to operate. But having mentioned this, he immediately adds that these are arcane mysteries of which they will not speak further at present.
Of course they won't. This is a close parallel, of course, to what we found at the end of De Occulta Philosophia 3.36. Undoubtedly, Agrippa is hinting at the same supreme mystery to which he intends to return later on in the treatise, which unfortunately has not been preserved. This mystery, as we have already seen, is that of perfect gnosis, leading to participation in the divine power of generation, by means of which man will enjoy almost unlimited powers. Next we have raised the question of how man lost the perfect knowledge of God that was true felicity. Agrippa discusses the fall of man in a lengthy passage that closely paraphrases the sections devoted to the same subject by Lazzarelli, including a substantial quotation that in the Crater is attributed to the Zohar. Notes also that in De Originale Peccato, written probably in 1518, uh, see extensive discussion in Vanderpool Cornelius Agrippa, Chapter 7, Agrippa mentions the doctrine of divine generation, but refers to De Homine for a complete discussion. And most important to note, no attempts so far have been successful to find the passage in the Zohar that are referred to there. God originally created man from a double nature, a divine and immortal one, and a bodily and mortal one. The body was mortal by nature because it consisted of discordant and contrary elements, but it was preserved from dissolution by divine grace. It was inhabited by the divine light, which continually imposed peace upon its elements keeping them in a state of harmony and balance, and thus ensured eternal life. Due to man's transgression, however, the light withdrew, the harmony was disrupted, and the body became subject to various illnesses leading to death. While adopting Lazzarelli's account of the fall as explained in his Crater, where a man falls from the contemplation of the Father into the sphere of generation, Agrippa speaks more specifically of a fall from the luminous sphere of contemplation into the sphere of carnal lust and darkness. In sperum concupiscenti et tenebrarum, and writes that this happened because he embraced the body, corpus amplectens. It is reasonable to see in this a reference to his remarkable belief expounded, probably two years later, in De, De Originale Peccato, that original sin consisted precisely of the sexual act. The implication is that Agrippa systematically juxtaposed two kinds of generation, a carnal one leading to death, and a spiritual one leading to immortality. Picking up the former strand first, the dialogue continues with a discussion of death, but breaks off in the middle of it. Undoubtedly, if the later parts were accessible to us, we would find there an extensive discussion of divine generation along Lazarellian lines. The Three Ways of Knowing God Agrippa's De Triplici Ratione Cognoscendi Deum can be seen as the culminating product of Agrippa's Hermetic Italian period. The text was recently published in a new critical annotated edition and Italian translation by Perone Campagni, to which I am much indebted. In line with the other texts from Agrippa's Italian period, we will see that this one too culminates in the Lazarellian doctrine of perfect gnosis leading to participation in the divine creative power. Along with Ficino, Pico, Roiklin, and Paolo Ricci, 
Lazzarelli is among the most frequently referenced authors in De Triplici Razione. The treatise begins with an account of how man fell because he turned away from the true knowledge of God, thereby opening up a fountain of sins, and falling victim to the companions of darkness. In short, ignorance of God is the source of all evils and the origin of all sins. This is followed in the second chapter by a distinction between three books in which the true knowledge can still be found, the book of nature, the book of the law, not Crowley's, <laughs> and the book of the gospel. As pointed out by Peron Campagni, they correspond to three periods in history, but must also be understood as three levels of knowledge, and as three progressively higher raciones. In addition, they obviously refer to three religions as well, paganism, Judaism, and Christianity. They are discussed in the three central chapters of De Triplici Razione. First, the ancient philosophers of the Gentiles learned about the divine by studying the book of nature. Paraphrasing Lazzarelli, who in turn was quoting Pseudo-Dionysius, Agrippa specifies that this does not mean we can know God as he is in and for himself, or that we can know his very essence. This is indeed impossible and beyond all human understanding. Quoting Pseudo-Dionysius directly from Lazzarelli's Crater, however, he continues that we can understand the participations and forces that emanate from him to us, whereby we are lifted up into God, and that give us substance or life or wisdom. This is why God can be seen in and through all that he has created, and it is in such a manner that the philosophers of the Gentiles could gain legitimate knowledge of God by studying the book of nature. However, they proved ungrateful for this gift, turned away from the pure and holy knowledge, and started following a false image. In this manner, Agrippa argues that one can learn from the pagan Gentiles, the Corpus Hermeticum is quoted extensively in this chapter, while nevertheless condemning them as pagans and idolaters. A higher, more sublime, and perfect level of knowledge was given to the Hebrews in the Book of the Law and the Commandments, which is in fact twofold. Beside the literal level, there is a spiritual one revealed by the Kabbalah, the Kabbalah teaches us to invoke the holy names of God and the angels, and also, quote, lists various corporeal acts by which men rendered, as if similar to gods and making themselves conform to the divine, ascend by certain steps to the lights of the Eternal Father, and filled by them they obtain a knowledge of God that surpasses the paths of nature. However, there is also a negative counterpart to this holy Kabbalah, practiced by those who have made pacts with the demons and boast stupendous powers, but are actually misusing the holy name of the Kabbalah and thereby bring it into disrepute, similar to what has happened with the name magic as well. Third and finally, there is the highest book of knowledge, that of the Gospel. Agrippa discusses it in his fifth chapter, which contains many extremely strongly worded attacks against the scholastics and their vain and empty dialectical games, which have actually been invented by the devil, of course. Of course they were invented by the devil. <laughs> dialectical reason is presented here as the sworn enemy of truth, and Agrippa sharply juxtaposes it to faith, which surpasses any form of knowledge in as far as it is based not on empty commentaries, but wholly on divine revelation, and immediately descends from the first light. However, while faith is indeed the perfect instrument of knowledge, it is not freely available to just anyone, 
It can only be used by a man who, with total singular determination, transcends inferior and sensible things and sets his course straight toward the mind itself. It's interesting to note in all of this uh, that if you ignore all of this writing and all of these, these hermetic scholars, as you might call them, it doesn't really seem, as some recent books have argued, that this is a Protestant tradition of spirituality, does it? It seems radically Catholic in origin, maybe just co-opted by later early reformers and Protestants, quote-unquote, who really often saw themselves still as Catholic. Let's not forget that Henry VIII, despite reforming the English church, lived and died seeing himself as a complete Catholic. That's a fact. And now, a word from our sponsors. While we cannot control whether any ads get put in the spots allocated, we thank you for listening to those that do, since they help keep this project alive. You can also get ad-free content and bonus content and videos and a private webpage by subscribing exclusively to magicwithoutfears.com for only a couple dollars a week, or six dollars a month, or fifty for the year. It helps a lot, plus you get emails about other exclusive things. Thank you very much. However... While faith is indeed the perfect instrument of knowledge, it is not freely available to just anyone. It can only be used by a man who, with total and singular determination, transcends inferior and sensible things and sets his course straight toward the mind itself. Now, in this regard, Agrippa's oft-noted fideism, faithism essentially, and his increasing emphasis on the Apostle Paul, who is frequently quoted here as well, should not make us lose sight of what he actually meant by faith. Arguably, the culminating passages of De Triplici Ratione as a whole are in its chapter 5.16, which describes the process of the soul's ascent to the mind, and in doing so is heavily dependent on passages taken from Ficino's Platonic Theology 13.4. The crucial passage in Ficino is the following. Which soul does this? It is the one which orders the fantasy to be silent and which, burning with desire, too for supernal divinity, does not trust itself to the customary discursiveness of the reason natural to it, but lives in the mind alone, issues as an angel, and takes God into its whole heart. But whereas Ficino concluded that at the apex of its ascent, the soul is made into an angel, see also the Fiat Angelus, a few lines further on in the same passage, Agrippa's made some significant modifications. In his version, the passage states that the powers and operations of both the soul and of reason are laid aside, and, living by the mind alone, adorned with hope, directed by faith, burning with love, totally turned towards God, and made fruitful in God by God's regeneration, it is made into a son of God and bears a new Emmanuel. That the offspring of the divinely regenerated soul is called Emmanuel could have something to do with a reference to Paolo Ricci, as suggested by Peron Campagni. But the concept as such is certainly entirely Lazarellian. We are dealing here very precisely with the central message of the Crater, according to which the gen regenerated soul bears a divine offspring. Quote, Thus you will come to understand the excellence of your own essence, and will in no way disparage yourself, despise yourself, will not trample in your own supper, but will 
Rise up out of the body, free from yourself and from all the things of the senses, ascending absolutely and purely to fly to that transcendent and most shining darkness where God dwells, to take your place among the number of the powers. And having been received among the powers, you shall enjoy God, and henceforth, begetting a divine offspring, you will procreate for God and not for yourself. Agrippa goes on at great length, undoubtedly in line with Lazarelli's meanings, that to this regenerated soul is given the power of receiving prophetic oracles and performing stupendous miraculous acts, while only the person who has transcended all bodily and carnal concerns and has made the ascent to the mind can truly be said to have faith. But such a person has also come into the possession of the divine power of creation itself, so that nothing is impossible for him, a power, in other words, that far transcends any human ability normally referred to as magic. Conclusion It is from this Lazarellian perspective that we should understand the relation in Agrippa's work between Gnosis and magic. Agrippa's true and pure divine magia, the sublime theurgy belonging to the third and highest level in his system, had nothing to do with astral magic, and in these days they meant astral magic not in the etheric, other dimensional sense of the astral plane, they meant it in terms of literally heavenly bodies in the planets, just to be clear, has nothing to do with astral magic or any other procedures or techniques that were under man's control. Wholly in line with the skepticism of his De Incertitudine et Vanitate, such human arts and sciences may have their uses and legitimacy but are uncertain and vain when it comes to attaining true and wholly reliable knowledge. Such perfect knowledge, or gnosis, is given only by faith in God, that is to say, in the true triune God of the Christian religion. The attainment of such gnosis Agrippa understands in terms of the ecstatic ascent of the soul, driven by the frenzy of Eros as described in Plato's Phaedrus. At the apex of this ascent, and by divine grace, the soul is reborn from God, and this must be taken not in any metaphorical but in a literal sense. The rebirth affects not only the soul but the body as well. Having been reborn as a true child of God, the effects of the fall are annihilated. This is a key point. The body is thereby restored to harmony, and man once more enjoys the generative powers of God himself. Such a supreme state can be attained, although rarely, during this life. Note, in fact, the theory would imply that the regenerated man has regained physical immortality. The divine light once again lives in his body and imposes peace upon its discordant elements, thereby preserving it from disintegration. How seriously Agrippa took this possibility remains unclear from the texts at our disposal. And makes man into much more than a magician. His powers are not human, but divine. This man is a great miracle indeed, the God-man of unlimited power who can even create souls. In Book 2, Chapter 50 of the final version of De Occulta Philosophia, we find a passage that from this perspective is now no longer mysterious. But who will give a soul to an image and make a stone to live? or metal, or wood, or wax, and raise out of stones children unto Abraham. Certainly no insensitive craftsman, 
will come into possession of this arcanum, nor will he be able to give what he does not have. Nobody has such powers. But he who has gained control over the elements, has overcome nature, has transcended the heavens and the angels, and attains to the archetype itself as a cooperator of which he can indeed do anything. Note, the term craftsman in this context may well be understood as hinting at the very textual origin of the entire line of reasoning analyzed here. The notorious God-making passages of Asclepius 23-24 to and 37-38, to with reference to which Lazzarelli developed his doctrine of divine generation. We have seen that Agrippa must have been aware of the connection between these passages and Lazzarelli's hymn, quoted in De Occulta Philosophia 3.36. Thus, his idea of divine generation as the apex of Christian faith, faith could not be seen as the exact positive counterpart of idolatry, the pagan perversion par excellence. A final closing remark concerns the issue of secrecy and concealment. If my analysis is correct, the implication is that Agrippa deliberately concealed the very heart of his religious doctrine behind elusive hints, enigmatic statements, and the evocation of secrets, which should not be publicly discussed. The faith of which he spoke was not intended for the great masses of Christian believers or for those who might read his work in search of magic in the common sense of the word. It could only be relevant to a small elite of single-minded mystical adepts who sincerely wish to reverse the effects of the fall and attain true knowledge and felicity and were willing to make everything else secondary to that task. In this sense... Agrippa may have been writing a compendium of magic for the general public, but one that concealed an esoteric doctrine for the few. Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.com co.uk that's hermetic science enterprises.co.uk and as a lot of you know i've uh, talked with the publisher lenny on the podcast before including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the patreon and uh seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of scott's discovery of witchcraft which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now, hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk.